Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know the singer Beth Ditto, right? She used to front the band The Gossip, also called Gossip. She's got a new solo album out. She lives in Portland right now. She grew up in Searcy, Arkansas, pretty small town, just about an hour outside Little Rock. There was no MTV, just a handful of punk rock shows. After high school, she did the thing a lot of punk kids do. She packed everything up and moved to a cooler, bigger city. For Beth, that city was Olympia, Washington, a place that couldn't be more different than Searcy. You know, listen, you take that bus downtown, you go to the Capitol Theater, you go to Homo Agogo, there's this kissing booths. I mean, there were like queer kissing booths where you could pay a dollar to kiss another girl. That was my first kiss. That's the first time I kissed a girl. I paid a dollar. So cheap. <laughs> it's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk with Beth about her latest solo record, her time spent fronting the band Gossip, and how when you're a kid setting up punk shows in a little town in Arkansas, there really isn't such a thing as clicks. I didn't realize that there was a division of like of different in subgenres of punk rockers and indie rockers and hipsters and posers and scenesters. Hippies didn't hang out with punks and punks didn't hang out with heshers because it wasn't like that. Because if we didn't hang out with each other, we would be alone. Before that, we'll replay my interview with Jonathan Gold, who died last month. He was a legendary food critic in Los Angeles, across the country, around the world, one of the best there ever was. He had the Pulitzer Prize to prove it. The thing that made him great was a philosophy that was as revolutionary as it was simple. I like really good food, and I like really good food wherever I find it. And if I'm going to find it at Taqueria, that's great. And if I'm going to find it at... You know, the the newest molecular cuisine restaurant, that's okay, too. Finally, I'll tell you about the greatest record that Sly and the Family Stone ever recorded. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So, you probably heard, but the writer Jonathan Gold died last month of pancreatic cancer. He was only 57. He was the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. His writing, which had appeared in L.A. Weekly, in Gourmet, and elsewhere, earned him a Pulitzer in 2007. To this date, he is still the only food critic to ever earn that honor. And when you're talking about Jonathan Gold, it's hard to overstate what he meant to the city of Los Angeles, where we record Bullseye every week, and to the food criticism world in general. His impact was enormous. There's his writing, elegant, personable, funny, meticulously researched. And there's the places he'd write about. He covered fancy restaurants with tasting menus and $15 cocktails. And he'd also put a spotlight on restaurants that often get ignored by critics. Korean noodle shops, Oaxacan mole restaurants, crowded Sichuan cafes tucked away in the San Gabriel Valley. Not that other writers weren't covering those kinds of places ever, but before Jonathan, they'd inevitably end up in a, a cheap eats column in the dining section or thrown together on a list of best-kept secrets in L.A. Jonathan Gold wrote those places into the exact same column as all the other restaurants. He celebrated them and honored them, and he worked just as hard, if not harder sometimes, to write authentically and informatively about the chefs, families, and traditions behind those restaurants. Anyway... All of that is to say that he will be sorely missed. I was lucky enough to get to talk to Jonathan Gold in 2011. You'll hear that conversation in a second. It was a few years after his Pulitzer, and four years before a local filmmaker named Laura Gabbert directed a documentary about him. She called it City of Gold. Here's a little bit from it. I do all the stuff you're supposed to do. I always reserve under different names. I switch up the names I reserve under. I switch up the phone numbers that I reserve under. I mean, I have a whole series of throwaway phones that I use just for reservations. It's, it's kind of like the it's it's kind of like the fat man's version of the born identity. I think. 
When I talked to Jonathan at my house in Los Angeles in 2011, I opened by asking about his L.A. roots. He's from South L.A. Right. I grew up um, near, uh, I guess, 63rd and Crenshaw. My dad spent his teenage years in Glendale. He grew up until he was like 13 or something like that in Kansas City, but then lived in Glendale. And um, and he's he's older than you are, Jonathan, but I remember him telling me one day about stealing his parents' car after they went to sleep and driving to the coast, um, which I guess, you know, this would have been 1960-ish, uh, was not the longest drive. I mean, a 45-minute drive, maybe. Right. But when he described it, it was as though he was going to Canada. You know what I mean? Like, it was like a whole different other world. And there's that sense in Los Angeles that, I don't know, I'm I'm from San Francisco, I didn't feel in San Francisco, of it being just a, a group of very individual worlds. It is that, and it is not that. It's, a, it's interesting that they both exist at the same time. For example, you can get in your car and you can drive for 100 miles on surface streets and still basically be in Los Angeles. I mean, the city names may change. It may be, might become one of the small suburbs. You might be in Orange County. You might be you know, up towards Santa Barbara. But it's basically culturally Los Angeles. It's the city that there's really no end to it. Unlike, for example, even New York City. I mean, there is a point where the city ends and the suburbs begin, and it's a clear demarcation. And here, that really doesn't exist. But on the other hand, because you're dealing with, you know, the vastness of the grid, you find that people tend to congregate in different ways than they might in a lot of the rest of the country. For example, in New York City, people entertain in restaurants because unless you're very rich, your apartment probably isn't great. Um, Here, we have backyards. I mean, even people who aren't super well-off have backyards. They might have swimming pools, and they have palm trees, and they barbecue. I mean, that's what the socializing is. And the insularity is bad in a lot of ways. It's bad for the city politic, I think. But in a way, it's very, very good for food. Because you will have enclaves of, say, you know, Koreans or Chinese or Mexicans or even more specific. I mean, people from like one very specific region of China or one very specific region of Korea that have restaurants that are meant to satisfy them. Um, your origin story is an interesting one. Like the, the Los Angeles of the 60s when and 70s when you're growing up is this kind of classic Los Angeles that like one of the special things about Los Angeles is that this place is the place that invented in many ways contemporary mass eating like the themed food experience the taco bell the all of these things are like special los angeles the tex-mex restaurant like these are all special los angelesy things and and often when you think of when when you go to like a los angeles thing from the 30s um that has been the you know a los angeles institution quote mm-hmm. unquote it's often a very very early form of that you know it's a very early form of chilies or whatever. It's not quite that simple. Um, but there, there is some truth to that. There is a sense of, in which because Hollywood and Los Angeles has been the source of so much mass culture in the United States, that the Los Angeles accent is like the one accent in the country that doesn't actually read as an accent. It that um, that music that comes out of studios in L.A. doesn't read as having an L.A. sound. It just has a sound. That um, whereas you could open a, um, a place called, you know, Joe's New York Bar 
and grill, and you'd know what they would serve, or Joe's Chicago hot dogs, and you'd have an idea what would be on the menu. But you could open a restaurant someplace called, you know, Max's Los Angeles, and you'd have no idea what they would serve. Probably avocados. That's, a, that's about as far as you could get, right? <laughs> it would involve avocados. <laughs> Maybe avocados. I mean, one of my favorite uh, food essays from the 30s is by S.J. Perlman, piece in The New Yorker that was Farewell, My Lovely Avocado. <laughs> <laughs> so you started, on this, you started on this project that is, I think, your, your famous origin story, which is eating your way from one end of Pico Boulevard to the other. Yeah, I started at a, uh, the old kosher butcher shop on um, Pico near Robertson. And Pico is, for people who don't live in Los Angeles, it's an east-west street that basically goes from one end of Los Angeles to the other. And it's sort of in the middle enough to be uh, in the middle, but it's also in the south enough to be genuinely... Um, sort of regular people e, including every kind of ethnicity that lives in Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I always think of it as LA's equivalent of like the tradesman's porch. Uh huh. <laughs> anyway, so you start you you were bored and you decided to work your way from one end of Pico to the other. Yeah, I started at a uh, the old Salvador Cafe, which was near where Pico dead ends into a Coca Cola bottling plant shaped like a thirty steamship, which I've always thought was astonishing. And I'd go and I'd eat every day. I would go off work and I'd go to the next restaurant and I'd sort of work my way down the street. And it was a, it was an education more than anything I've ever done. I think. You were a critic for Gourmet Magazine, based in New York, for a little while, right? Um, and you write about the toniest restaurants in Los Angeles sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. What do you like the most about fine dining restaurant food? Well, the food is freaking great, or at least it can be great. That it's where the most interesting and most innovative chefs wind up. They're the people who usually end up with the best raw materials. That they have the experience and the technique to be able to put it together in a way that's wonderful. The problem is that when the ambitions are high, the skill level and the imagination is often not as high as the ambition, and they fall flat on their face in a way that's just not going to happen in a taqueria. I mean, a taqueria that's awful will last three weeks. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There's plenty of places to get tacos. But when somebody is working on a really high level and they're pulling it off, I mean, it's 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 miraculous. I mean, they they actually sort of like they can change your worldview with what's on a plate. So when when you get to eat a food that changes your worldview, um, what is it that keeps you going to taco places that, for all you know, might end up sucking? Well, may I say they don't all change my worldview. I mean, that's the thing. It's like I've, I'm bored out of my mind with a lot of sort of formal restaurant ritual. And, I mean, some of it's wonderful. Some of it is there just because it's always been there. And a lot of the restaurants are geared towards people who are, A, spectacularly wealthy, or, B, celebrating, you know, an anniversary divisible by five. And those people have different expectations from dinner than I might. It's not about the food. It's about something else. I feel almost violated when I'm going into a place and I'm dropping $500 for dinner. And it's bad. I mean, mean, really, it should be like pitchforks and torches time. I don't know why most (laughs) people don't rise up against them. And some of the really spectacularly bad dishonest restaurants have been operating for decades and I don't know it, I, I, get, I, guess, I guess it is what it is but I, I like really good food and I like really good food wherever I find it and if I'm going to find it at Taqueria that's great and if I'm going to find it at you know the, the newest molecular cuisine restaurant that's okay too I find that um, in some ways, the more I live in Los Angeles, 
the less I venture forth into the world. Um, because just going places kind of exhausts me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, f- I feel bummed about that because I feel like I'm, I'm missing out on so much of what Los Angeles has to offer. And I wonder how your life outside of eating has been affected by the fact that your job requires you to haul your ass to Norwalk or Orange, places that you otherwise wouldn't make a point of of visiting. It's, in a lot of ways, it doesn't change that much. I mean, I I drive around during the day. I come home. I, I always cook my kids dinner before I go out. I mean, actually, a lot of times, like, the number one qualification is, is the dinner that I cook for my kids that I'm leaving behind better than (laughs) (laughs) what what I have just driven 20 miles and paid $200 for. And actually, an obnoxiously high percentage of the time it is. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to my 2011 conversation with the Pulitzer-winning food writer Jonathan Gold. He died last month at 57. How many days a week are you going out and eating for work? Um, probably six out of seven. And at, how, at least one meal. That's not that great, and just paying for it and leaving. Are you are you doubling up on on meals in those days? Sometimes. Sometimes I mean, sometimes I'll go to a lot of places. Um, I know that. Jonathan, you need to understand that while this does not seem like a big deal to you, I think to, uh, uh, there are probably, what, a dozen people in the world who eat the way that you do, so it is a big deal to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can understand that. I know I figured it out one time, and I go to about four restaurants that I don't review for every restaurant that I do review. Do you still in, encounter foods that make you trepidatious? There are, yeah, I mean, I see terror in a plate of scrambled eggs for some reason. I'm just, <laughs> there's something about like a naked egg that just terrifies me. Are you cool with other forms of the egg? Uh, How about pickled eggs? How do you feel about pickled eggs? I, no, I don't like pickled eggs. I don't like them boiled. I don't like them shirred. I don't, I cook eggs every single freaking day, <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> I, I cook more for my family. I cook more eggs in a short order cook. But I, the, the idea of eating one is, it's hard. Do you have to adjust for your personal taste or have you managed to broaden your palate to the point where, you can eat some weird Thai regional cuisine and you don't have to worry about the fact that you're you just you're just not that into Thai cuttlefish. Um I try very hard to get beyond that. I mean I've told the story before, but there was in the nineties um, a a Taiwanese restaurant. And I went into I just loathed it more than I've loathed any restaurant I've ever been to. I mean, the, um, the soup was thick and it was like okra. I mean, it was like gumbo plus, right? So it was like you take a spoon and it would like snap back into the bowl. <laughs> and it was flavored. There was a smokiness that wasn't like subtle and wonderful. It was like somebody had stubbed out a cigar in it. <laughs> and um, there was something called um, stinky tofu. <laughs> I mean, that's what they call it, right? That's not the euphemism. That's like, uh, I think you're getting the idea. This was not my favorite place. Right. But I, but I looked around and I see everybody was enjoying the food. People were well-dressed. It was a nice restaurant. It was clear that pe- that the chef was doing exactly what he meant to be doing, that he wasn't messing up, that this wasn't his fault. It was he was cooking the food exactly the way that he thought it should be cooked. And that the problem was that I was approaching it wrong. And I went back to that restaurant 17 times. 17? Yeah. That's a lot of times. Yeah. And I reviewed it, and I talked about all the things that put me off about it, but I think I was able to put it in context, that I was able to look at the food the way that it was meant to be looked at. That's hard. I mean, food is this thing that means who we are and where we're from. And it's 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 got to be hard to pick up someone else's, you know, 
cultural context enough to get something that's coming from someone who until, you know, six years ago lived 12,000 miles away. Yeah. I mean, some of it is incredibly difficult. Like, um, there's a dish, I hate to bring Taiwan up again, but here we go. Um, it's a beef noodle soup. And in the San Gabriel Valley here, there are probably 50 places that serve it. They all taste pretty freaking close to one another. But you can listen to two Taiwanese people arguing about which is better and why and what the exact uh, QQ of the noodle means as opposed to this one's slightly softer noodle, as opposed to this one's funkier armpitty beef flavor, as opposed to this one's sort of suave broth. And it's probably enough to start wars. And, and it's I know that I've nearly started wars over uh, burritos in my hometown, so I can relate. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've started wars between um, Northern and Southern California. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I know you're from the Mission, but I think the, I think the Mission burrito is just a monstrosity. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> There's really nothing you could tell me that would hurt me more than what you just said, Jonathan Gold. Oh, I'm sorry. I've, I've, tr- I've tried them all. <laughs> You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Jonathan Gold after a short break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye. For MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Squarespace. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Customize your website's look and feel, settings, products, and more with just a few clicks. Head to Squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code BULLSEYE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. The future is coming. Make it brighter with Squarespace. Planning a transportation vacation with kids this summer? Well, remember to pack the wow in the world. I'm Mindy Thomas, and together with my buddy Guy Raz, we've got over 60 episodes for your family road trip adventures. New scientific discoveries and knuckle-cracking, exploding ants, and burping black holes. Find wow in the world wherever you get your podcasts. So you want to understand what's going on in the world. But trying to keep up with the news can be such a headache. With clickbait headlines, TV news acting like there's always two equal sides to every story. And never enough talk about the various McDonald Playland characters. Okay, in my defense though, when I brought that up, we learned a lot. That's true. (laughs) I'm Brent Black. I'm Courtney Enlow. And I'm Travis McElroy. With Trends Like These. Real life friends talking internet trends. We debunk misleading headlines from the top trending news. We always throw in at least one positive story. But we call out bullshit when we see it. Join us each week on MaximumFun.org. Because with trends like these... Who needs any memes? Ah? Uh? Ah? Uh? <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Right now, we're listening back to my interview with Jonathan Gold. Jonathan Gold was the food critic for the Los Angeles Times and the L.A. Weekly before that. He died last month. He was 57. A few years back, he was the subject of a documentary called City of Gold. Here's an excerpt from it. My first year out of college, I was working downtown as a proofreader, and I was bored out of my mind. So I decided to make it my project to eat at every restaurant on Pico Boulevard. Pico Boulevard is kind of Los Angeles' back porch. It goes through a remarkable swath of town. There's a place called the El Salvador Cafe on the eastern end that was one of the first Salvadoran places in town. And way at the Santa Monica end was a place called Tom's Number no. 5, which had my favorite chili fries in town. It's really good chili fries. Is there anything that you eat here in Los Angeles that makes you proud to be an Angelino in the way that eating a burrito makes me <laughs> proud to be from San Francisco? I don't know. I mean, I mean, Los Angeles has given many foods to the world. And pretty much all of the national fast food culture comes out of the greater L.A. area for better, for worse. You know, L.A. is where, you know, the, you know, obviously the Cobb salad was invented, the Caesar salad. is. But something that, that just, like, 
breeze Los Angeles that would be um, just like you walk down a street here and in in ordinary block and you'll see like a, a half timbered Tudor house and you'll see two Spanish haciendas and you'll see an Italian villa and you'll see you know Cotswold Cottage and, and like all these you know wonderful kinds of like fantasy domestic architecture that come from all over the freaking world and just exist on one block because this is Los Angeles and we make it's a comfortable place for all of that. And as far as something that, uh, food that uniquely expresses the, um, the culture of LA, I don't know. I mean, I, I could talk about the East LA green chili burrito. <laughs> Jonathan Gold from 2011. This goes without saying, but if you haven't seen the 2015 documentary on Jonathan, City of Gold, it's a really moving tribute to him. You can stream or rent it on a bunch of different platforms. Jonathan is survived by his wife, fellow journalist Lori Ochoa, and their two children. Friends of the family are running a GoFundMe to help with funeral expenses and other costs. You can search for it or find a link on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. I'll say here that Jonathan was a hero of mine, both as a journalist and as an Angelino. Um... And it's honestly hard to imagine the city of Los Angeles without him in it. Um, he was a hero to many people here in the MaximumFun.org offices. And um, whether we met him in person or followed his work, uh, we're very grateful for his life and his contribution to our lives. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Beth Ditto. She and I talked last year. Beth is a singer and songwriter. She was born and raised in Searcy, Arkansas, moved to Washington State out of high school, and made a name for herself as the singer in Gossip. The band first broke through in the early 2000s, coming up with dance punk groups The Rapture, LCD Sound System, and Liars. But where those bands were arty, dark, and even a little self-serious sometimes... The gossip were fun. They were proudly queer. And, frankly, Beth could wail. Gossip broke up in 2016, and in the wake of all that, Beth Ditto launched her solo career. She released her first record in 2017. She called it Fake Sugar. The album's a departure from the gossip sound, more of a pop record, but Beth's voice has only grown in range and power. Like, now instead of channeling, like, Donna Summer, you hear Stevie Nicks, Tina Turner. This summer, she's hitting the road on a huge tour with dates all over the U.S. She's opening for the singer-songwriter Sam Smith. Anyway, let's take a listen to a single from Fake Sugar. This song is called Fire. Beth Ditto, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. How old were you when you moved from your hometown to Olympia, Washington? Oh, look at you. You know. You know the real place. Um, I was 18 years old. I graduated. I turned 18 February of 99. I graduated in May of 99, and I moved in June of 99. Did you go to go to school or did you go to not go to school? I went to follow my friends. They were they moved up there because one of my friends went to school um who we started gossip together. But she moved to go to Evergreen and so I looked around and all of my weirdo friends were gone and so I just moved up there to be with them. Um no, I never went to school. Mm-mm. I barely graduated high school, let alone more of that. 
and and also like left entirely up to my own devices. I, I would never. I would have just gotten a lot of debt and a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> you mean if you had you gone to school? Yeah, yeah. What was the scene like in your hometown? Hilarious. Where, where was it? Hilarious. I grew up in Judsonia, which is just outside of Cersei, which is about Cersei's when you were like. When you, it was Saturday morning, you'd be like, your mom would be like, we're going to town. You went to Cersei. That's where you got groceries and stuff. So um, that's where the Walmart was. Um, so that's where um, I met Kathy and Nathan and Jerry and a few other kids, too. Um, but that's who we, I moved to Olympia with. So, yeah. So, you know, we had our own little scene there. And, like, there weren't that many of us. Um, we were all really different. We all were into different things. I think they were much cooler than me. They were also older than me. But, you know, Kathy was three years older than me. Nathan was two. Jerry was one year older, which is why I moved after. But um, so, I, you know, I just, I wasn't as cool as they were. So I was listening to old music and was into different things on my own, like even feminism and things like that. Like I hadn't really... Um, gotten into Riot Girl deeply yet when I'd met them at all. Like, it was something I'd heard passed around, but it wasn't anything I knew a lot about. I was more, like, listening to, like, Mama Cass and Nina Simone and, um, you know, just Tori Amos was a big one for me. I listened to a lot of Melanie. And, you know, that's pretty much where, that's, that's where my music nerdiness came from was old music. So I was a natural weirdo, and they were natural weirdos. And the ideas that we even that the notion we even met each other is really incredible. I mean, we looked so ridiculous. Like I remember my friend Jerry cutting off his pant legs and then wearing tube socks with the shorts that he'd made, but then like safety pinning the pant legs to his sleeves. So like, and then wearing um, taking apart computers and wearing this the the what is it called the, the board the. Um, circuit board the circuit board yeah. on his shirt because he was such a cyber techie kid like pre-internet i read the first time i saw the internet it was at his house actually <laughs> in the 90s and it was the slowest most ridiculous dot matrix pixelated thing i've ever seen like it took Beth, like you're just des- hours. you're describing like a second grader building a robot you're not describing a high schooler yeah. designing fashion no that was what it was and that's why it was so amazing it was so innocent and like really untouched i mean because the beauty was is that we did we were second graders if you had gone to those shows that we were playing for each other like it was so different from anything else and it was it was unpretentious if everyone was just having fun hippies were hanging out like we when i i didn't realize that there was a division of like of different in subgenres of punk rockers and indie rockers and hipsters and posers and scenesters hippies didn't hang out with punks and punks didn't hang out with heshers because it wasn't like that because if we didn't hang out with each other we would be alone so the beauty was like we didn't and also MTV wasn't a thing unless you had a satellite dish because our cable company was too Christian to carry it you couldn't get it and so we were really cut off in this way that what we had we envisioned what we thought a scene would be so it was just the most in some ways like in retrospect I remember Nathan and I talking about it how it was so avant-garde like it was just so ridiculously made up and hilarious like it was just real. It was really great and innocent. It was so fun. What was it like for you when you had to adjust to living on the the mean streets of Olympia, Washington? <laughs> I mean, everyone is nice, you know. I think in the in their own way, it's definitely not Southern nice. But that was me being very naive. You know, my wife still says she's always like, "You are so naive," and I'm like, "I don't really feel naive." But I also just. I I think it was amazing. Honestly, it was incredible. Like I don't I'm not ta- I'm not throwing it under the bus. Speaking of buses, there were city buses and I'd never seen that before. I'd never been on a city bus. I'd never gone to I'd never lived in a town with a mall. I you know, when I was a kid, the mall was somewhere you went once a year, maybe. You know, and your school took you on a field trip. It was just like you 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 know, you're, if you were really lucky, your parents gave you 20 bucks and you could go to the Spencer's and get a T-shirt with the Mr. Potato Head on it. Like, it I, like I don't mean to interrupt, Beth, but you went on a school you? field trip to the mall? Well, we would go to different places in Little Rock, you know, and then we would go to the mall for lunch and then we would eat at the food court and then we could shop for about an hour. Got it. <laughs> I love that is a strange use of the academic calendar. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're going to the zoo and then you're stopping in for lunch, I get that. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, you think about it, it's like, sure, it's like maybe it's not like 
academic, but there's some kids, you know, where we're from that would never have gotten to go had it not been for that. And if you think about that in, in its own way, like culturally, that's really important. Like they would never have seen, except for maybe the the hospital at that time, maybe one of the banks and even been in a, in a place with an elevator and like that's or an escalator or anything. And that in its own way, that's pretty important, too. So it just depends on how you look at it. I was in remedial math in eighth and ninth grade, and I swear to you, they took the kids that were in special ed and remedial classes, and they would take us every year, just us, to tour the prisons. That's not a joke. (laughs) And so that you could see what your life would turn out if you didn't smarten up or straighten up or, like, get your life together. So did you have a vision of what your life was going to be at all? I, you know what's crazy is I tried, and this just dawned on me when you asked me that question. I tried as hard as I could to be, to have a decision made for me because I didn't have one. Like I really, I'm so grateful for my high school boyfriend for not knocking me up because there were times when I was like, I have, you have to get me pregnant because I didn't want to come out of the closet. I didn't want to make that life decision. I wanted it to be made for me. I wanted to have to live for somebody else. And what a nightmare sentence that would have been. And I feel like there are a lot of people around there that would have totally done that. Did you, at the time when you were a teenager, did you know that you were a lesbian? Yeah, definitely. And so did he, which is funny. I really had, you know, (laughs) I put him through the rinker. I was always like, I think I'm gay. I need to break up with you. But we were together for three years. I mean, I sent him an email a long time ago that was like, you know, I just want to say thank you. You were the best boyfriend a high school lesbian could have had. What was it like for you when you got to Olympia? Not only were there uh, teams of rock and rollers, but there were like specific lesbian teams as well. Oh, man, I, I learned so much. There was so much about my own sexuality and gender that I didn't even know. I mean, I was 18 and like off the turnip truck. Like I still believed in God. I mean, I was still under that, under the thumb of the Bible Belt. I was still living in, in that, you know, fear. So like it, just to meet other people who were queer and like they had, you know, in different queer identities and genders and like. The fluidity of all of that, like, it changed my life. It was so incredible. Like, it was, like, the best. It was, like, I do, you know, the thing about Olympia, I I lived there for four years and then I moved to Portland. The thing about Olympia that was so incredible is that some people went to go to school and they went to Evergreen and they went for their four years. Some people didn't finish or whatever. Some people are still there. But for me, it was four years of college of, like, complete life experience where I learned so much about you know, it was like a queer, it was a queer women's study in its in itself. Like I learned so many things, and I'm, like it's another thing I'm really grateful for. I don't. It's the other thing. It's just like if like, you know, I knew about grunge and stuff like that. I knew about Seattle, and I was obsessed with it, of course. But I really didn't know about Olympia. And like, if I'd have been a little teenager, I I would have been like, what? That's crazy. It was. I, I learned so much. I mean. You know, listen, you take that bus downtown, you go to the Capitol Theater, you go to Homo Agogo, there's there's kissing booths. I mean, there were like queer kissing booths where you could pay a dollar to kiss another girl. That was my first kiss. That's the first time I kissed a girl. I paid a dollar. So cheap. <laughs> that is a bargain. That is a steal, my friend. Good investment. Yeah, great investment. Was there a moment, Beth? I mean, I, I talked to um, I talked to Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and yeah. she described to me when she saw Kathleen Hanna perform mm. for the first time, uh, who was in uh, Bikini Kill and the Tigre, that it was so so thrilling to her to see that a woman could do that, 
Um, and it was so just what she had never known that was exactly what she wanted to do and be that it felt like, you know, it was a real Unchain the Beast moment. Mm, mm. Did you ever have a moment when you were starting the gossip with your friend from back home, mm-hmm. uh, Nathan, who's known in the band as Brace Payne? And also Kathy, to remember, too. Yeah. She She was from back home, too. So did you guys ever... Like, was there a moment when you acknowledged, when you saw what you wanted and maybe even felt like you could do it? I think Nathan probably saw it more than we did. And no. (laughs) I remember, I mean, later you do when you realize, oh, you actually have a thing and people are actually coming to see you on tour and like you're 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 on tour period like i remember that moment it was and i remember being like i want to do this for a living i if i can i never thought about doing it for a living i never thought about being a musician i mean watching slater kenny was i have to say also that i am forever in their debt they took us on tour and gave us everything we weren't hip enough to like punk tours that we even knew that you needed a, to like I can't even tell you what we didn't know. It, we were just scatterbrained, crazy. Like we were just like our friend was like, "We'll drive you." We're like, "Okay." We didn't even think, "Hey, maybe you should hire her as a roadie." We just like saw her as a driver. We would just show up and be like, "Can we borrow your amp?" Like we never even thought. We didn't know what a sound check was. I didn't know what monitors were. Like I didn't. They, I had no idea. And that went on for years. I didn't know. It was way after Slater Kenny tour. But they really. Like, if we needed anything... I mean, Carrie would let us sleep in the floor in her room. All of us. Like, in her, like, hotel rooms. Like, she didn't and have to And this is when... That. I mean, by the time you were touring with them, they were legitimate rock stars. They oh, were... yeah. This was All Hands on the Bad One tour. This is, like... So, like, I had been listening to them at home. But here's the other thing. is like, I had no idea. The other thing is, like, I saw them as... They were rock stars to me. But nobody I knew knew who they were growing up. Because it wasn't that kind of scene. It wasn't It wasn't that connected. So we were very, it was a very small group of people. But when I realized, I guess, just how big they were, I was like, whoa, baby, whoops. <laughs> so it was kind of a blessing that I didn't know. It's just a whirlwind. But yeah, at this time, they were already, they were, I mean, the first time we ever played San Francisco was the Fillmore, and it was with them. I mean, there was a moment when... Um, I had decided with my girlfriend I was going to go back to Arkansas because I could go to beauty school for free with financial aid uh, because I was still technically a resident there, blah, blah, blah. And my first girlfriend and I were going to go back and um, go to beauty school for really cheap and live with my sister and blah, blah, blah. And um, I had told this to Kathy, who was playing drums and gossip, and she had told this to Carrie. And we were at the Crystal Ballroom, and we were still opening for them. And Carrie asked the crowd... In the middle of their set, she was like, who here thinks that Beth should go back to Arkansas and become a hairdresser? And everybody booed. And then um, still to this moment, it chokes me up. And then after that, she was like, who here thinks, raise your hand if you think Beth should stay here and pursue her rock and roll career. And everybody cheered and raised their hand. And I remember Kathy looked at me and she hugged me really tight. And then Carrie looked at me and I was just like, and and after that, I was just like, oh this this people believe in me you know i think that was a thing with slater kenny too and and all of them is like kindness wasn't always a punk thing either um even though it's like sisterly and feminist there's a warmth that is really necessary for me that was missing and slater kenny really showed us that warmth so i'm always grateful to them It, it actually kind of tears me up because to me, that was the most empowering moment of sisterhood. One of them that I had experienced my entire career of Olympia career. We'll finish up my interview with Beth Ditto after a break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Babbel, a language program that quickly teaches real-life conversations in a new language. Choose from Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons use interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology to get you speaking your new language correctly and confidently. Try Babbel for free by downloading the app or going 
to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Why do women get paid less than men? Why does Louisiana State University have a lazy river and a tiger habitat? The Indicator, a daily podcast where we tackle the big economic questions. Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott, and we're Everything's Everything's Coming Coming Up Simpsons. Simpsons. We are a Simpsons podcast on the Maximum Fun Network, and we've got some exciting news. Ooh, tell me. We are going to be doing some live podcast shows in some of our favorite cities. We're so excited, and we want to let you guys know out there in the Max Fun universe that we are coming to you. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. On Saturday, September 15th, we will be at the North Door in Austin, Texas. Yeehaw. On Saturday, December 1st, we will be at the Alamo Draft. House Sloan's Lake in Denver, Colorado. There's no basement in the Alamo. Mm, we'll find out. Friday, <laughs> December 7th, we are going to be at the Vera Project in Seattle, Washington. Oh, God. Uh, Nirvana. Yes. Okay. And Saturday, December 8th, we'll be at Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Matt Groening lives there. Yeah. I once lived there. He he still lives there in our hearts. So um, make sure that you mark your calendars for those dates, and we will be posting the ticketing links on our Twitter. That is at SimpsonsPod, and we will smell you later. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Beth Ditto. When we talked last year, she'd recorded her first ever album since the breakup of her band The Gossip. The album was called Fake Sugar. Beth is on tour later this month with dates all over the U.S. When your friend Nathan, who had co-founded The Gossip with you, Mm -hmm. moved back home to uh, live on the farm that he grew up in. Mm. And you ultimately decided to break up the band um, Mm. sort of by by mutual acclamation. Mm. Did you feel confident that you could make music on your own without this guy who had been like your big brother forever? No. No. I didn't feel, I think had I set out to make a solo record in the first place, like if I was like, baby, I'm going solo, it would have been different. But I think because I was already writing for the gossip record anyway, and there were already songs that just weren't gossip songs, and I I was like, well, why would I throw these away? I think I knew that I had songs already. Now, had I made a decision to do it by myself without songs, I don't know what would have happened. But I have this thing, and you know, I always say that I'm at the musician's mercy. Like, I'm at the guitar player's mercy. I'm only as good as the player that I'm with or the person that's making the music because I can't read music. I can't play it. I can't. I can hum it. You know, I can say, maybe, can you try to play it like this or give my ideas and try to communicate them but I can't tell you what to do I don't really know the language so um, I'm only as good as the person that I'm with and so that's frightening but at that point I'd already had things you know I'd already had music and I think because I was writing for gossip it gave me I I always say that I think gossip was over two years before it was over I think when Nathan moved back it was over the last show I, I think that we played together was the night before my wedding. I think that was that. Well, yeah, that was four years ago. So, um, not the night before my wedding, but the night before I left for the the trip, and um, yeah. So, I think it was over a long time ago. It, it must have Beth been scary to kind of lose him to the thing that had taken the two of you into the, you know, down the path of starting a band in the first place that, that the two of you had, yeah. had left town together, so, so to speak. And well, he taught that had me everything. Your, yeah. And then to have him go back and I understand he, he, he was born again and it's just a, he, he chose to go back to the life that mm. the two of you had agreed to Ran leave from. when you were teenagers. Not only that, but that gave us fuel to do what we did. Like, our escape, I think, from Arkansas and our absolute just, like, need for distance and something else drove us 
to do everything that we did. And when you think about, like, that is now, you know, the potential that he could turn into that person. And I don't think he will. He's not a homophobic, you know, sexist, crazy person. And I like to call him the Billy Zoom of gossip. That's what I always called him before. You know, gossip, um, <laughs> while we were still on tour and stuff and he was finding God, I was like, you, you're just such a little evangelist. Like, because he is very charismatic. The thing about Nathan is that he's a he's a damn genius. He's the funniest person I've ever met. Um, the longest relationship I ever had. The longest job I ever had. The longest thing, the longest project I ever did was with him. I've never been anywhere in the world with more people with any with anyone else as many with you know what I mean. Like um, we saw everything together. Everything. I mean. Like, you know, we went from squats to four seasons. And, like, that's um, so real. And the thing is, is that is sad. Going out and doing whatever by myself, like making music, playing shows, none of that is sad or difficult. None of it. And, you know, it's not, I don't feel like the the breaking up was the hardest thing. Um, you know, Kathy, when we decided, like, I mean, we kicked Kathy out of the band when Hannah came along. That was the hardest thing I ever had to do with gossip until Nathan left. And, you know, people are like, oh, I, you know, people are like, Beth, you left the gossip. And I was like, no, it just stopped. And it stopped a long time ago. It's like when you're in a marriage or in a romantic relationship, you really know, you know, it's over, but no one's saying it. It was like that. Your solo album, as it turned out, kind of feels like it's got a lot of home in it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I think I used my 20s and my late teens and gossip. And I used, we used all of that, you know, coming out of the closet, all of that excitement, being surrounded by feminists and being surrounded by music and going to a show whether it be a good show or a bad show, you know, bad bands happen to good people, good bands happen to bad people. It's just like whatever it was, it's like you had all of that. Like, you know, Olympia to some people doesn't seem like a very big thing. But for me, it was a huge – I'd never been in, lived in a town that big. I'd never been exposed to that much stuff. So, like, we had all this great stuff and, like, we used – like our childhood and our past and we use them to like fuel and motivate our youth and all of the paths that we took and all of the great things that happened to us and all the great people that we met and I feel like now I'm using it to fuel nostalgia and like I'm kind of seeing it through a soft focus lens especially like I lost my dad in 2011 so like you start to realize that all of these bad memories that you had, like, if, I think if he was still living, you still see them as existing. And, you know, they're, they're, they're memories that, that are still connected to these feelings because this person is still living. They're still connected to, they're still raw, they're still alive. But when I think when my dad died, enough time had gone by that I started to look at things fondly. Even the weird little things where you're like, you know, my dad had really, really bad arthritis and that's what killed him. But like he had rheumatoid arthritis so bad that his hands, um, he couldn't slap us in the head because he'd knock us in the head. Like if we said something, like if I cussed on accident or something, I remember my sister was like, I dare you to do Yankee Doodle with all F's. Well, when you say stuck a feather in his hat with an F, guess what he did with that feather in his hat? So I said that in front of my dad and he would, he would try to like backhand you a little bit but instead of backhanding you like his hand was so stiff it didn't really work so it was just a thud it was just like pooch so when that when his hand stopped to be even being like got even less like um you know he, he could stop using them even less and they were more um how do you say that um he couldn't use them but anyway there were like you want to say like um what is it called floppy I don't know but when they when he could he would thump you instead and so <laughs> so like when you would get in trouble because he couldn't hold the belt to whoop you and he couldn't give you he couldn't backhand you um he's very gentle my dad but he for real but he could only thump you and like when you look at that in retrospect it sounds you're like what are you talking about whoopings and 
five across the eyes, but for you know, when I talk about that with my siblings now, we laugh so hard at how funny that is. Not that Dad had arthritis, but there's the the shock of the thump because you never saw it coming. Yeah, when you look back on that kind of stuff, it's like you when someone's alive, you 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 take that memory for granted, and when they're gone, you see it as this really whimsical, funny little memory that you're gonna that those are, and those are the things. And that's all you're ever going to have of that person. There's not going to be any new memories. So my dad used to take me to honky-tonks, you know. And we used to go to the VFW because I grew up in a dry county. So it was like the only place that you could get booze and you had to be a member, of course. And But my brother, was who was 14, and my other and my cousin played boogie-woogie piano and, like, would play Jerry Lee Lewis and, like, country music and Little Richard. And my brother would play drums for him. And my dad would do sound for them. And we would, my dad would take us on his weekends to have us and we would go honky tonking and two stepping. And dad, you know, take us, he would get all dressed up, which meant that he would put on his country western belt and a, and a vest that had his name tag on it that just said Homer. But um, those memories were so, when I think about music and after all these years of answering interviews about music and like what, what people were listening to and what I grew up with and country music and soul music and blues music and all of that stuff, gospel music, I've, I didn't think about it until he was gone how instrumental that was in in me being a singer. So this record really, I, I wanted to make maybe a record that dad would like. I mean, he was always really proud and like really into, <laughs> so funny, his doctor, he was just really, you know, he didn't see anybody else. He saw his wife, and he'd see us every once in a while. He only saw me once a year, if that. And he was always really proud to brag to his doctors and the nurses that his daughter was a singer. Beth, we're, <laughs> we're plumb out of time, but I'm you so grateful. Say. I'm so grateful to you for coming on Bullseye. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Sunny days and I'm getting paid. It's welcome back the very next day. Beth Ditto from last year. If you want to catch her on tour, and believe me, you definitely do want to catch her on tour, she'll be opening for Sam Smith all this month and into next. Go to the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org for dates. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the Outshot. A lot changed in a few years for Sly and the Family Stone. Originally, the band was Utopian. On their first record, Sly's brother and sister were there, but there was also this towering chick with an afro playing trumpet and white dudes on drums and sax. When they broke in 1968, it was with a single called Dance to the Music, which is one of the most thrilling chunks of joy that has ever been put on wax. Sly and the Family Stone were looking to create a brand new world. A year or two later, though, the utopian ideal was already starting to curdle. The band moved from the East Bay to Los Angeles. Sly bought a rock star house in the hills, and he started carrying a violin case full of drugs, literally a violin case full of drugs, and not psychedelics and pot either, like Coke and PCP. It was always within arm's reach. In fact, you weren't even allowed to bring your own stuff to Sly's house. You had to get it from Sly. He'd line people up in his study for a snort out of a little gold spoon. In 1969, Larry Graham's bass anchored a single that seemed to ride the line between hopeful and depressed. Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself came out just after everything started to turn south. The chorus is almost hopeful, but the verse describes a street fight. Thank you for the party, says Sly, but I could never stay. You can feel the isolation building. Looking at the devil. Looking at the devil. 
Then, just as the band and its creator turned inward into blow and angel dust, they made a masterpiece. It was going to be called Africa Talks to You. Drummer Gregorico had quit. Larry Graham was close to doing the same. Sly holed up in their record plant in Sausalito with a drum machine and some friends, Bobby Womack, Billy Preston, Ike Turner, a bunch of girls. And he made explicit the implicit darkness of his last hit. The album ended up being called There's a Riot Going On. It was called that, of course, because there were riots going on. The lead single was the Family Stone's last huge hit, one of the loneliest songs about family. Somebody that just loves to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. Mom loves the both of them. You see, it's in the blood. Both kids are good and bomb. Than the mud, it's a family affair. Riot isn't quite an angry album. It's an insular album. It's the place you go when you've lost faith in the rest of the world. So many of the songs are about retreating into oneself, retreating into chemicals. One of the few bright tunes on the album is about nodding out. As soul turned into funk and the 1970s progressed, social protest in songs went from novel to cliché. The man, capital T, capital M, went from being kind of a useful idea to being sort of a joke. But unlike a lot of those records, Riot isn't about railing at the outside world. It's more about settling within yourself. By the 70s, Sly was a paranoid disaster area, missing concerts, always high. But there was still this note of hope in his music. This was the hope, that inside of us, somewhere, was peace. We were brave enough not to run away from it. Five years after Riot, Sly's career was pretty much over. Ten years afterwards, he had more or less disappeared. But he did make a perfect album before he got out of Dodge. That's my own shot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. By the way, we are also neighbors to two of Jonathan Gold's favorite restaurants, Mama's International Tamales on 7th, and Langer's, makers of the best pastrami in America. Sorry, New York. It's true. 
The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shana Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our theme song was recorded by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries, who let us use it. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, we've got over 15 years. Wow. Been doing this a long time. We've got over 15 years of interviews available. Just go to MaximumFun.org to listen. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.